The opinions and viewpoints expressed in .NET Rocks are not necessarily those of its sponsors or of Microsoft Corporation, its partners, or employees. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, which is solely responsible for its content. Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. Another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Jeff Maciolik, here to announce show number 131, with guest David Treadwell, recorded live Tuesday, September 13, 2005. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and now offering hands-on VBNet and ASP.NET classes remotely online at www.franklins.net and by Data Dynamics, makers of ActiveReports.net, simple, powerful, and cost-effective reporting for Windows Forms and ASP.NET web applications online at www.datadynamics.com. Support is also provided by Code Magazine, the leading independent magazine for .NET developers, online at www.code-magazine.com. And now, the man whose chambermaids are still trying to figure out what liquid ass is, Carl Franklin. Digital blood without any pain. Thank you, thank you, and welcome to another stellar episode of .NET Rocks. This week, live from the PDC... My friend Richard Campbell in Vancouver out there. Hello. Hey, man. How you doing? We're back. It was fun. Loads of fun. Crazy days. Saw some really good things at the PDC this week, last week. Was one of them the new ribbon? Uh, no. I'm, the verdict's still out on that, the office ribbon. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's innovative, but we'll see how people like it. Yeah, it's too early I, I think, to tell, you know, really. Same old problem we always run into. At PDC, they show you stuff very, very early, and they wanted to gauge our response on that. Yeah. You know, this new control, and then we all pretty much went, bah! Yeah. Yeah, so we'll we'll have to see, see how that one pans out. I'd like to see it a little bit more. But what I did like was, I really liked, was the new expression suite oh, of awesome. products. Um, I can tell, you know, of course, they're still in the in the alpha phase of that but i can tell that's going to be special i think it's going to be amazing and i wrestle between whether that should ultimately become the Div- visual studio and, or keep it a separate product so that uh, you know developers don't get their hands on being able to do reflections well i think sparkle is what we're talking about here and, and sparkle is a an interactive designer for for software designers and i think what they're really trying to do in sparkle is while you can put some code in there it's really not for the developer. It's for, uh, you know, they're really trying to separate the role of the application UI designer from the, from the application coder. 
And uh, definitely, yeah, from that perspective, this is really the first time we've had a tool, I think, you know, with XAML and being able to go back and forth without breaking code that, you know, the really the first time we've been able to do this for Windows applications. And that's the big thing for me is making sure this is round trippable. It's all well and fine for a designer to come up with a UI and then the programmer comes in and hooks it up with some code. But can it go back to the designer without the designer destroying it? Right. And I think you're, I think you're going to hear a lot of stuff on .NET Rocks about that in the future. It's just very early on in the process. But uh, keep looking for that, the expression suite of products. Anyway, um, I want to read an email here. This one's from Steve Pascoe. Hey, Carl, Richard, and Jeff. I'm from Sydney, Australia, and I've just managed to catch up my work from having a week off to go to my first tech ed before last week over in Gold Coast, Australia. I got to say, having never been in a Microsoft event before, hey, I'm only 24, it's taken me four years to prove myself at my employers as a coder, and I was stoked that I could go. So I hear, I hear you think out loud, so what? I got to hear a, a, a seminar from Jay Rocks. Well, thanks to your show, I was able to gain a better idea of the crew at Microsoft, how they think and how they go about doing what they do. I really enjoyed the Jay Rocks episode, and it'd be awesome to hear from him on your show again. Well, this is how lame I am. After the seminar, they take questions offline. After everyone had gone, I went up to Jay, and he asked, Hey there, is there any question I can answer for you? And I reply with, Nah, mate, I just wanted to say good day." <laughs> at that time i had flashbacks of wayne's world i'm not worthy i'm not worthy <laughs> i then he, he is awesome i then told him how i've heard him on dotnet rocks etc and we had a good old yarn about dnr anyway i just thought for one uh for once it was great to meet some some of the guys at microsoft including jay and thank dnr for providing this tremendous service to the dotnet community all over the world Steve Pascoe, Sydney, Australia. How cool is that? That's really cool. And hey, we got to meet Jay Rocks this week too, didn't we? Yeah, that's right. We did. Had dinner with him. Yeah, we had dinner with him with a Paul Sheriff and a bunch of other people, some people from a new sponsor that uh, is sponsoring the road trip, Inner Workings. Um, yeah. Some, some great tools. I'm sure you're going to be hearing a lot about them in the near future. And Richard, this is sort of one of those flashback um, shows, right? Because right. we're not actually there now recording this. We're we're home safe, and uh, but we did manage to find a, a room in the nether regions of the Los Angeles Convention Center. I think it was like walking to San Francisco, actually, where we <laughs> were able to interview uh, a couple people for this week's show and next week's show. David Treadwell this week and Amanda Silver and Paul Vick next week. Um, but before we play that interview with David Treadwell, which is great, you just have to, you just, this is a great interview. It was great for me. Uh, I want you to uh, hear, uh, you know, I was down getting some coffee at the PDC in the lounge area near Starbucks, and I ran into uh, Rory. So uh, he actually had some news to announce and an amusing anecdote. Let's listen to that first. Hey, I'm at the PDC, and we're sitting down having a coffee, and who should be here but Rory Blythe? Hey, Rory. Hi. What's the matter, man? Nothing. You know, um, uh, as some of the people who used to listen to .NET Rocks know, I occasionally go on and off the antidepressants because sometimes I get like kind of like crazy and suicidally depressed or anxious or whatever. And Carl just happens to have caught me right in the middle of day two of ramping up on the antidepressants, following a particularly emotional... Jesus, you know how to kill an interview. Back, back jerk. And as I was saying, um, Carl uh, got me right in the middle of ramping up on the antidepressants just uh, after two days. Um, I, had a, I had a meet with my shrink this week over the phone. Actually, and I had a really nice cry to cry with her. 
uh, in the hotel room while everybody else was going to sessions. And, uh, and so Carl wants to know what I've been doing. And what I've been doing is sitting in my hotel room and wiping the tears. <laughs> you know how to kill an interview, man. This is, well, I, I, you just... so, so, so we went to the influencers party on Tuesday, right? Yes, we went to the influencers party on Tuesday. And everybody, all the beautiful people were there. There were some beautiful people. That yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, did anything happen there that uh, was kind of funny? That was kind of funny. Yeah, really funny. Um, as a matter of fact, I was standing around by the melting ice sculpture and the women hanging from the ceiling in their weird tissue paper doing the aerial ballet. And uh, I reached in back of my bag to look for my Purell hand lotion, my hand sanitizer, and it was gone. And so, of course, naturally my jaw dropped because, you know, I'm at this party where everybody's covered in fecal matter or something, and they're all touching me and stuff like that, and I don't know what to do about it, and i gotta, I got to wipe myself down, wash things down, and I can't. So uh, my, my stuff's gone, and I start bothering everybody around me. I'm like, somebody help me, help me, help me, help me. You know, kind of like when somebody loses their baby, you know? Like, my baby's gone. Where's my baby? It was kind of like that, except just my Purell. And, and uh, I was trying to figure out where it had gone. And so I had people on the, on the ground looking for my Purell under tables and uh, under the shuffling feet. Remember that scene in Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom when they're trying to get the antidote and the diamond? It was kind of like that. And so, uh, so I thought, okay, well, whatever. The Purell's gone. I'm just not going to touch my hand to my face at any time during the rest of the party. Um, and I designated like a cleaner hand and a dirtier hand, decided which I would use for whatever I needed um, in terms of sanitary requirements. And I'm walking around, and at some point during this party, uh, one of my coworkers, uh, Anna Nair, comes up, and he's got my Purell. I mean, he hands it to me, and he has very little explanation. I thought about strangling him because obviously it was, you know, foul play here. And he explains that while I had been talking to Carl Franklin, um, uh, Carl reached in the back of my bag, pulled the Purell out, and then stuck it in the back of Anand's pants. You know, and I can't figure out if I'm more disturbed by the fact that somebody took my uh, sanitizer or that he took it and helped himself to the back of Anand's pants uh, uh, to place it there. So that was kind of disgusting. So I get this stuff back, and now I've got my hand sanitizer, but I've got a bit of a conundrum because it's been in Anand's pants. And I don't really know if I want to touch it in order to clean myself. And you start wondering, it gets philosophical. It's like, well, what do I sanitize the sanitizer with, right? So, uh... So it was, it, was, it was a good party, um, except for the whole middle section where I was missing my Purell and when Carl was there. And for the record, uh, I didn't just stuff it in Anand's pants. Uh, did I, Anand? Yes, you did, Carl. No, no, I didn't. No, I, didn't. <laughs> I think you also groped me while you were at it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, so, so what about the PDC? What's fun here? Actually, the stuff that I'm getting really excited about. Okay, here's the deal, right? We were at the PDC two years ago, and that was sort of like the, the everything's kind of existing and happening out in the ether PDC. Um, nobody had really seen Longhorn yet. Nobody knew anything about WinFS or Indigo or anything like that. And anyway, so uh, the PDC two years ago was sort of like the, the big abstract PDC. It's where all this stuff is coming out. It's not half-baked. It's not even a quarter-baked. It, it barely exists on napkins as diagrams, and we're going to show it to you, and everybody got really excited. And so this PDC is a little bit different, you know. It seems like there's not quite as much, you know, rabbit excitement just because if you look at Vista, it's, it's a real product now. You know, it's not just a collection of could-bees and will-bees. It's, it's, it's mostly baked. And okay, we all know that, but... What what what's what's weird here? What's weird here? Yeah, what's weird? There's twice as many women as there were last time. There's six uh, this time. That's a little weird. Um, I've been getting used to that. Um, aside from that, I haven't really noticed anything particularly weird aside from my own state of mind, uh, which has been sort of like Alice in Wonderland. You know, I mean, did you see those two people in the exhibit hall yesterday dressed up as like Mep Mephistopheles and uh, some I don't know Julius Caesar or something? I thought I was hallucinating. Um, I guess I may have seen those people. I don't really know what was going on. You, you have plans to do something uh, in the podcast arena? Can you talk about that? 
I do, and I can. So uh, I've been talking to Mr. Carl Franklin here about the possibility of collaborating on some sort of a future project, or at least uh, uh, collaborating in terms of the .NET Rocks branding. And I'm going to be doing a podcast series probably every two weeks, and it's going to be entirely about mobile and embedded devices. So Carl asked what, what is exciting me about the PDC right now, and the thing that's getting me most excited is definitely the Windows Mobile 5 stuff. Um, and anybody who's like been reading my blog or who knows me knows that that's the area that's been getting me the most excited at Microsoft anyway. right? Vista, Windows is a nice mature product, but the mobile stuff is still like really changing pretty frequently. There's, there's a lot going on there, and, and it's, it's really thrilling. So. I'm going, to be, I'm going to be talking to developers. I'm going to be talking to gadget guys. I'm going to be doing... It's not going to be just development stuff. It's going to be also reviews of gadgets that are coming out and, and what's going on and everything. So it's, it's going to be a good show. That sounds cool. you have any, any idea of what you're going to name it or... I don't have... Well, I mean, I do have ideas about the names, but um, they're really not very good. And uh, sorry, Anin was trying to take my Purell hand lotion. Um, they're really not very good, and so I don't want to share them yet. So I'm going to come up with a whole list of names and then run them by some people and, and see what everybody thinks. I don't want to share anything right now. No comment. Thank you. All right, great. Well, we'll keep reading your blog, and it's good to see you, man. Well, bring it back. My blog, by the way, is neopolian.com, N-E-O-P-O-L-E-O-N.com, or, of course, you can always just go to Google and type in Rory. Yes. And, uh, or you could type in something weird into Google. That's and you actually. Pig milk is still one of the most popular searches leading to my site, although the number one, you know, you want, you want to Google weirdos? I'll give, you, I'll give you one very quick one. Okay. Do you know what the number one search term is, at least on my site right now? No, what's that? It accounts for over 15% of all traffic revving to my site. You have no idea? No idea. Ass. <laughs> Why? I don't know how I got that. I don't know how I got so high in the rankings for ass. I mean, I guess it's kind of self-explanatory, isn't it? Um, <laughs> But, it's, but the thing is, I didn't understand that Google was like sentient, that it actually understood, that it could look at the content and figure out from that and then, you know, categorize me appropriately. But yeah, ass. Maybe the word is just a bit overused in your work. No comment. Okay. This, this, I, this interview is terminated. All right. Well, you, you heard it right from Roy. I guess we got to shut it off. Thanks, Roy. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay. All right. Bye. <laughs> that guy is an absolute certified nutcase, man. Uh, and he hasn't forgiven me yet for taking over his job. Yeah. Now he's having a good time, it sounds like. Yeah. I think he likes what he's doing. Well, I can't wait to hear what he wants to do with the podcast. Well, anyway, as we said before, we uh, interviewed uh, David Treadwell, who's the corporate vice president of the .NET developer platform, developer division. And as we found out, he's, uh, he's a developer. He's a, yeah. He's a corporate vice president who actually started out as a developer on NT as we're going to hear in this interview. And instead of reading his bio for you, I'm just going to let him introduce himself. Great interview with David Treadwell. Here we go. So uh, what happens here is we, we, uh, we, we cornered a guest, uh, David Treadwell, who is here in the room with us. And we found this room. Hi, David. Hi, guys. How's it going? Great. And so we just wanted to talk to David and, and uh, you know, no email, no, no witty banter at the beginning of this show, I suppose. Right? Just a good old-fashioned interview, the best way. Exactly. So, David, hi. Hi. Uh, tell us about yourself. What, who are you and what do you do? Sure thing, Carl. I'm the vice president of Microsoft's .NET developer platform team. And essentially, I'm responsible for the engineering of the platform components of .NET. That includes things like the CLR, ASP.NET, the Compact Framework. Wow. Uh, several other sort of lower-level technologies that are basically form the runtime of what you use when you're programming to .NET. So uh, I guess you're in charge of .NET. 
I mean, that's a colloquial way to say that. Isn't well, that's it? broad. I mean, .NET has many yeah. other components, including the web services stuff sure. and the tools aspects and whatnot. So, sure. really, the runtime components, the framework, and yeah, the, the framework and the runtime components are what I'm responsible. Right, so, you for. don't worry about the stuff like getting the CLR to run inside a SQL Server and that kind of weird thing. Actually, that is in is it one domain. of your problems. Yeah, SQL CLR is one of the things that, that we do in the in the team itself. Wow, that's an interesting challenge. It's I'm a it's a shared it's a shared effort between my team and the SQL team. It's probably about fifty fifty the work that happens there because a lot of it is matching up the the interfaces in SQL, which is in some ways almost like an operating system unto itself. Absolutely. And connecting that with what we have to do in the framework to, to work well with that. So it's really about 50-50. Between the two we teams. should establish also for the listeners that you're a developer. Yeah, that's that's actually accurate. I started uh, at Microsoft 16 years ago, uh, writing code uh, with Kernahan and Richie beside my desk, learning mm-hmm. how to do NT operating system kernel stuff. Excellent. You know, Kernigan and Ritchie finally came out and said that C is a hoax, right? You know that? <laughs> <laughs> Didn't actually know that. No. <laughs> Brian never told me that. I actually, no, it was keep just in touch a joke with Brian. To see how complex a compiler could actually get. <laughs> <laughs> that whole curly braces and case sensitive thing. Yeah, it's a gag. Yeah, it's a gag. <laughs> so, so you, what kinds of things were you working on way back then? Windows one. Were were you back in that? Age, actually, or? I wasn't in the traditional Windows groups. I started okay. in the NT team. Uh, oh, which oh, was good. basically a bunch of folks from digital who yeah. came to Microsoft to create a new operating system and wow. one college kid, which was me. And wow. so I had the opportunity. You were the college kid. I was the college kid. No I had kidding. the opportunity to work with a bunch of people who knew what they were doing and wow. learned a little that bit from cool. them. cool. It must have been a riot for you. Yeah, it was fun. What a team to fun. be on. Yep. And I was, you know, a kid out of college, had frankly no life outside of Microsoft. So I was yeah. working 80 hours a week just writing code all day I long. I thought that's how all Microsoft employees were. That, that, well, that's <laughs> why I say everybody out of college, you start 80 hours a week. That's kind of the normal thing to do. <laughs> And college was computer science, I take it. Actually, I studied electroengineering in college. Okay. Um, I only took, it's a funny story, I only took one CS course in college. Mm. Uh, it was CS217 called Systems. And through all my college career, it was the worst grade I got in college. And wow. I think I, I decided <laughs> that I wanted some sort of challenge uh, because I went to the industry to basically work on computer systems. Right. <laughs> Here we are. It's funny. I, you know, I know a lot of electrical engineers that ended up in the computer industry that yeah. really the engineering discipline is an excellent discipline for writing, you know, great yeah. applications. At its core, most most of college is a technical person is learning how to solve problems. Right. And, you know, the, the technology is going to change quickly over time. It's not so much exactly what you learn. It's your ability to solve problems. So. Dan Appleman is an EE. An EE, uh, yes. Who got into computer science. Exactly, well. And exactly true. The, the disciplined mind it takes to succeed as an engineer is exactly the kind of mind that's going to succeed writing programs. Yeah. Especially, you know, NT. So, <laughs> that you know, from going with no operating system experience to NT, I mean, that's quite a quite a leap. It was quite a leap. It was... Uh, I need to spend 80 hours a week to get 40 hours a week of work done. <laughs> so did you work with work. David Cutler and, yeah. and those guys? Yeah, actually, Dave Dave was a big part of the reason why I came to Microsoft. You okay. know, an exceptionally respected engineer, somebody I thought I could learn from. And I, I talked to him before I came to Microsoft and was super impressed with the guy. So so was he like a mentor then, I guess, uh, would you say? I wouldn't call him a mentor per se. Uh, if you know Dave, that's not really his style. Yeah, I don't. I've <laughs> never met him. Okay. Um, but the... Uh, he was he was maybe a quiet mentor in the okay. sense that his code served as an example for here's excellent code and his work ethic and his focus on quality yeah. are things that inspire people. Yeah. So getting on to this idea of learning about operating systems, you know, where did that take place? Did it take place at the desk? Did you read up on books? Did you, you know, uh, where did your education in OSs come from? Well, the education OSs, frankly, came from sitting in front of the computer looking at the code that the other experts from digital had written. Wow. You know, understanding their specs, understanding the the way they put together the system. These are – this is a group of folks who are 
probably the the most senior, the most exceptional group of operating system engineers in the world at yeah. the time. They created other operating systems and and they took the learnings that they'd had there and used that to build NT. And one of the the great things that I think that they did is because they've been through enough times, they they had a real vision of what the system would need to be. And in fact, today, a lot of the code in Vista is nearly unmodified yeah. from when Dave Cutler and Dale Havens and Chuck Lensmeyer, when these folks wrote this back in 1988, 1989. Yeah, they got it right then. Yeah, they really did. Yeah, and what's remarkable, to have, to have living software, you know, things people care about, not just stuff you maintain off on the shelf, but something that's mainline core code that you care a lot about. That's essentially persisted for 17 years. I mean, that, yeah. that's kind of remarkable in the industry. It is remarkable. These guys did. Well, if you think about, they had a lot of uh, impetus to create something a lot more stable because obviously Windows had grown to the point where you know systems had grown, uh, you know, RAM availability had grown, and we we're still working in this 640k model, you know, and then the 32-bit Windows 95 came out, but it still wasn't quite solid enough. So. Well, uh, you know, maybe a lot of people don't know this, but what is it about NT that separates it from that lineage, the 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 uh, the Windows ninety five lineage? Well, at a very high level, uh, NT is a fundamentally different kernel. All the the guts of NT are different than the guts of Win nine X, which was essentially DOS. Yeah. You know, with Win nine X, we took the DOS system and put a new shell on it, put a new programming model on it, but DOS had never really been designed to support a multi threaded, preemptive, multitasking operating system. It just right. wasn't the right base for that. And the strategy was that NT would serve as a base which was written for that level of system that, that could yeah. really handle uh, the right kind of operating system. The challenge, of course, was that you know in the early 90s, NT required more resources, mostly memory and CPU, right. Right. than the machines were capable of delivering. Yeah, it really was ahead of its time. Yeah. yeah. It, the early releases of NT, you know, like in NT 3.1, it was good for what it did, but you wouldn't run it very much on a client because it required so much more RAM. I used 3.1 in the command line mode. I thought it was fabulous for that, but I was operating servers. That's what mattered to yeah, me. Yeah, for servers, it right. was fine, but you wouldn't use it as a client because the, the machines no, of the it day weren't really up to it. wasn't up for it yet. Yeah. So the, the main distinction between the NT and the 9X base is basically NT was designed to be a you know, preemptive, multi-threaded, multitasking operating yeah. system and works pretty well as that base. And we've, we've tried to have application protection, you know, protection from crashing and all that kind of stuff, going all the way back to the AT and protected mode, right. you know. Um, so what is it in terms of memory management about the NT base, which is now the lineage is Windows 2000 and XP. And Vista. And, and Vista right. is the obviously up and coming iteration. Uh, what is it about that memory management wise that's different from the 9X lineage? Well, essentially, it was designed right from the start to be a virtual memory system. Um, with DOS, it wasn't designed to be virtual memory in the beginning. And so it had to be swapping. Yeah, it had to be retrofitted. Yeah. And retrofitting something like that it's pretty tough to do effectively. Um, you know, you, you can't really put something so deep and foundational on top of the system. Yeah. Whereas NT, you know, the guys who, who built that knew right up at the front that that was going to be a prerequisite for their yeah. operating system. So they really designed that yeah. kind of infrastructure right into the system. Yep. And you could definitely tell. I mean, there was, a, there was an option in NT to run this program in its own process. And I guess the process was the magic is the magic that that keeps things separate but right um, exactly the process is the boundary of, of protection between yeah. code and you could tell that and, and there's so many people out there now that think oh i don't use the computer that much i'm just going to stick with the old the old versions of windows you know the me windows me you know that kind of stuff and windows 98 the big difference was when something blew up and it blew up once in a while you yeah. know software would fail in a 9x machine once you had a piece of software fail you knew 
You were on a time You're limit doomed. to reboot. Yeah. The reboot's yeah. coming. Here yeah. it comes. You know, yep. you might yeah. as well get there first yep. before it does it itself. Get ready. Yep. Right. Where with an NT box, when a program died, that program died. That's yep. all that died. Everything yep. else was fine. And essentially, the the philosophy is that if a program is able to impact the rest of the system, well, that's a bug in the system. Yeah. Right. Yeah. There, there are certain kinds of things like if something's spinning and taking up CPU, okay, yeah. that you can't control. But in general, the rule is program degrades the system, system bug, not a program bug, right. which is different. And program A shouldn't be able to damage program B. That's what an OS's job is to say, oh, no, you play in your own pool. Right. And in what Literally. operating system did uh, were, were programs running in their own process by default? Because it was an option in NT, wasn't it? In NT4, I think it was even an option, wasn't it? Uh, in... Well, even in 9X, programs kind of have their own process, but there's less protection between right. the processes in 9X. Right. In NT, it's it's essentially the default, and you have to go out of your way to run other code in your process. By okay. default, you know, process, you own your process, and, and what's in that process is under your control. Yeah. Other processes can't kind of hijack your own process or okay. run in it directly. So when did you make the jump from uh, operating systems to you know, developing framework. development frameworks. Yeah. Well, the, the history basically goes, I, I worked on the file server in NT for a while and moved from that to work on Winsock in the early days of the internet. Yay, oh, cool. Winsock. Dude. Yeah. <laughs> Dude. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I wrote the original Winsock. You yeah. wrote really? the original Winsock? That's spec? fabulous. Yeah. I, All right, is, give me some skin. Okay, give me some skin. Go. All right. Uh, the power of actually being in the same room, we could shake ads on a good one. <laughs> wow. So I wrote the Winsock stuff and I did the Winsock implementation for NT in uh, like 92 through 94. Right. And this is when the op, the the internet was just becoming relevant. Sure. When we were still arguing whether TCF PIP was important or not. Right. Or That's OSI. Right. Remember yep. the yeah. OSI maybe was the better architected and it was right. going to be the real thing. And, you know, these days TCF IP is, you don't even talk about yeah, it. Yeah, well, there is only one. And, and you know, the, and in those days, you were loading Winsock as a as a third-party tool. You yeah, were in loading... fact, on the, on the 9X the, systems. Yeah, what was the, what was the public domain... Wins, trumpet wins trumpet. Yep. That's what it was. Everybody was loading trumpet, and then you guys built it right into the next. Yeah, row. exactly. Be- before Microsoft included it with the system, yeah, an end user had to go get their TCP/IP and Winsock implementations from right. somewhere. A lot of people used trumpet. There were about ten in the yeah, industry. Yeah, they were yeah. competing there was a lot. essentially. All of them. They all and had they would, big ads in the back of PC Week magazine. Also, you also got this this weird browser thing with it too. Uh, there was uh, yeah, yeah, it was cello, cello. A couple years yeah. later, but yeah. <laughs> The uh, I think it's kind of one of the less well-known parts of the success of the internet is the inclusion of TCP/IP and Winsock yeah. with the system. Right. Absolutely. Because before that, you know, it was a fair amount of work to go install Trumpet, Winsock. Oh, yeah, and not for the week. Like, yeah. you really had to know a lot of stuff to make that exactly. work. Exactly. You had to be somewhat expert on it. And, and, and if you did it wrong, you really made a mess oh, yeah. of things in your machine. Yeah. That was bad. Yep. Yeah, yep, it was very trouble. complex. That yeah. was when, you know, everybody had to deal with IP addresses. And yep. these days, you know, only the <laughs> people so, more into so the network. So what came after Winsock? It. After Winsock, um, that kind of migrated naturally into what became the web server. You know, it became clear that this internet thing was going to be a big deal someday. And maybe Microsoft should should do more than just supply the low-level sort of network infrastructure. That we should also yeah. supply servers to make the systems more compelling. Right, right. So our original strategy was to have one developer on each of the major server protocols at the time. So we had one person on FTP, one person on Gopher, one person on Waze, one person on Archie, one Archie. person on Veronica. Yeah. All these random <laughs> protocols, all of which are dead, and one person on this HTTP thing. Yeah. And so we we. Uh, progressed for about six or eight months with that strategy and then kind of realized, you know, all these others go for, et cetera, they're, they're going away. It's all going to be about the web because yeah. it's the one that's flexible, 
You have the graphics. Right. You can do kind of anything you want on this web one. So right. slowly we put all the weight on the web server, which became the Internet Information Server. So I was essentially the dev manager of the Internet Information oh, Server IS through one. the mid-90s. Yeah, IS wow. 1, 2, 3, and 4. I was dev manager. Wow. And one of the funny things about IS is that in 1996, we shipped three versions of IS, which was a, you probably <laughs> it was remember a good that. year. Yeah, it was a good it was year. a real good year. Well, in reality, you know, that, that time of the industry, people were working, people were shipping alpha and beta software as our right. team. And that's what everybody was using on the internet. And, yeah. you know, the first couple of releases of IS, yeah. in retrospect, you know, we wouldn't ship those today as. Although the internet versions. database connector was pretty cool for its time. IDC was IDC very cool. Was it was very, revolutionary. Very cool. Yeah. I remember, in fact, I think I wrote an article in VBPJ about IDC in the in the first IIS 1.0. Blew my mind. It yeah. absolutely blew my mind. There was some neat stuff. John Ludeman and Jay Aller did a great job designing that and putting together a good Kudos system. Kudos to them. It. Yep. That was a long time ago. Yeah. So from IIS, uh, essentially what happened, and, and this gets into the genesis of .NET. Yeah. Uh, by about late 97, early 98, Microsoft had gotten to the point where our internet offerings were in good shape. We had a great browser yep. with IE4. We had a great web server with IIS4. ASP was out. I mean, ASP, ASP 1.0 yeah, was now long. Classic yep. ASP was available. And so the basics of a great internet solution were in place. And what was happening internally at the company then was, hey, we've got Win32. We've got a good internet set of technologies. What's next? Yeah. And right. at that point in time, Jim Alchin set off a lot of people on thinking about what's the next programming model. You know, this Java thing, this idea of a managed runtime environment is starting to pick up steam. We care a ton about developer productivity. That's always been one of the core tenets of Microsoft. Yeah. yeah. And we set off on a on a quest to design a new uh, platform and associated tools to make it easier to write the kinds of programs people wanted to write, essentially to take Win32 really to the next level. And, and, and where did your analysis of COM and what was going on there fit into it? Because yeah. sort of all sort of all these different aspects of .NET sort of came together. And that's right? an excellent point. I, sh I shouldn't underplay the COM aspect of it because COM was another thing that was, you know, it, it helps a ton on developer productivity. Um, in some ways, because of the systems that we had available at the time, you know, it was a little bit built on top of other things. So it wasn't yeah. exactly the super integrated deep part of the programming model that we wanted. Right. And in the beginning, Olay, not being the manifestation of COM at the time of the internet, really, really didn't work all that well with, with the internet, you know, right. a lot of slow modems. Right. A it, lot it's, of, uh, it's a bad impedance match. In yeah. Some ways. Just, it wasn't yeah. really designed. Timing well was that. off. And that was the big thing about ASP was bringing COM to the web. Yes. Yeah. ASP let you on the web server make use of COM very easily right. because of the use of VB script and JScript on the yep. server side. You could invoke COM objects super right. easily. And leverage all that work we'd already done. Yeah, exactly. But the, so we kind of realized like, okay, we got a good internet solution. We got some pieces of the puzzle here for a good programming solution, but we decided we really wanted to kind of take a fundamental look at what's the right way to build a managed runtime environment that's mm. well integrated with Windows, mm. that works well with the web, mm. that uh, lets people you know, efficiently, effectively develop the kind of programs that they want to develop. And uh, we had this project called the Lightning Project, which was the original code name of what's now the CLR. And it was a managed runtime environment. And, and over the course of several years, uh, I eventually moved from the web server to being, for a little while, the, the manager of the Lightning Project. And took that a little ways. And, the, you know, there's lots of reorgs, lots of change because we were kind of figuring out what we wanted to do. There was this project called Project 42 that was uh, <laughs> sort of... Uh, okay, 42. Douglas Adams, is this a That's, reference to yes, the well, Hitchhiker's Guide? Yeah, what, what's... 
the answer to everything. The answer yeah. is 42. And in, in fact, that's, um, great. <laughs> the, that's good that you got that reference. The, yeah. the, the reality was the project was so ambitious. You know, it, it was the answer to everything. Or yeah. it, it purported to be the answer to everything. Folks, do yourself a favor and check out our friends Data Dynamics website, datadynamics.com, makers of ActiveReports.net. Simple, powerful, and cost-effective reporting for uh, Windows Forms and ASP.NET. Very nice stuff. You compile the uh, the reports right into your application, ship them with your assemblies. Uh, has all the great features you come to expect in a reporting engine, and you can use uh, ActiveX controls right in the reports too. So, great stuff. Uh, Data Dynamics has been an excellent sponsor of .NET Rocks uh, for a long time. They, uh, you know, they deserve a little bit of uh, your love and attention. So, go check them out at www.datadynamics.com. talking about building a new development model yeah and we know in hindsight now we can see oh that was the path but when you're trying to get there and you're saying well what's the new development model you don't know what it is you're trying to come up with the right ideas and i'm sure there was a lot of contending views of what lightning should be i'm sure there was very true yeah and and Essentially, we want it to be all of those things. Nobody was wrong about their right. vision. How can I create an inclusive vision? Right, all of these <laughs> right. But the reality is, it was so inclusive that you know, by the time we shipped it, there wouldn't be hungry kids in Africa, and the world would be at peace. <laughs> yeah. It would have been that extreme a solution. Is, wasn't that the mantra of Corba? Well, <laughs> there's some relationship. You know, Corba is, is from the same era, yeah. in essence. But but what had to happen between essentially '98 and 2000 is, uh, you know, we had our grand visions in solving world peace and all the rest of it. And we realized, you know, world peace is maybe beyond what we can do here in, in building 42. It turns out we were at yeah, Microsoft. Yeah, that's great. Um, <laughs> and, and so we decided, okay, let's go back to something that's actually achievable. Yeah. And the coming out party for what we were doing was the 2000 PDC right. down in Orlando. That's where we said, okay, um, you know, we've been talking about the the concept of web services, the concept of a more productive developer environment. Mm. And at the 2000 PDC, it was very gratifying for us who've been involved in it because we could see we were able to deliver you know actual early alphabets mm. and i think uh the feedback we got was very good that people were impressed with the work that we'd done mm. that net was going to be a, a very compelling yeah development environment development platform for them to use yeah that's a great history it's that fabulous stuff. yeah and then since then you know it's all been about polishing the diamond essentially sure. we shipped the first release of uh of .NET Framework and Visual Studio.NET in early 2002. Um, we had the .1 release mm-hmm. in early 03. And as you're probably aware, the Widby release, which is a 2.0, a lot yeah, of new functionality, it's, yeah. it's imminent. It's, you know, it's funny that as challenging as it was in the lightning days to come up with the view of what 1.0 would be, 
it's no easier once it ships to keep making new versions and deal with backward compatibility and changing, you know, the way things work now that you shipped a version to the way we realize we really want to use something. You know, nothing beats putting a piece of code in the field and figuring out how people use it. Oh, that's really the issue, isn't it? Backward compatibility. I mean, this is what Microsoft is really good at balancing backward compatibility versus innovation. That we we try really hard. You do a great I job. Think, thank you. Compared uh, to other people in the uh, other companies in the industry, it's very I know it's very difficult to do. I've been in the software business, I know. And and I I've heard the horror stories about the early days of Java with all the different incompatibilities and different versions of the JRE. Um, you you must have picked up that kind of uh, feedback from the Java community. Yeah, I'll, early I'll, on. I'll tell you our internal assessment of our of our backward compatibilities. We spend a huge amount of time on it. It is one of the company's sort of core principles is yes. to help people move forward their operating systems, their development platforms, their applications, kind of at all levels. Right. Um, Don't punish the guys who came before. Exactly. You know, and we work really, really hard at that. I, I think there's more we can do. I think one of the, uh, you know, David, before you say, it, I think it, it's undervalued. Uh, and people tend not to see that as a feature. Uh, but, you know, the, because you can see a lot of innovation spinning off, you know, in open source movement, they're going at breakneck speeds. You know, Google is just pushing out all this innovative stuff. But, you know, they don't have the issue of backward compatibility to contend with. When you guys come out with something innovative, it also has to work in all aspects of Windows, Office, you know, previous versions of Windows, previous versions of the .NET framework. And, and to pull that off requires a lot of a lot of effort. Thank you. It is a huge amount of effort. It's hard to overstate. Because without that feature, that. none of it works. Yeah. Right? Yeah. yeah. One thing that might be interesting here is for me to talk for a second about what we're doing with that backward compatibility on .NET Widby, the .NET mm -hmm. Framework 2.0 Widby. Mm -hmm. um, there's a couple aspects of it. Uh, one thing is there's this concept of side-by-side, -side, which is something we introduced actually with the 1.1 version of the right. framework. Yes. And the idea is that instead of, if you as a user want to get you know the new version of .NET, instead of forcing you to essentially eliminate your old version, we allow major versions of the framework to run side by side with each other. Yeah. So that if you have like a 2.0 application and a 1.1 application, you can have both the 2.0 and the 1.1 framework on your machine and each process will get the appropriate version of the framework. I think that's amazing. It's great. It's even more stunning when you see that in action is, and then I'm able to get an update to the 1.1 framework and update that without pranging the 2.0 exactly. beta yes. on the way. Exactly. And we work very totally hard to keep them different. as it's separate magic. as we can. Really? It's yeah. great. Yeah, it's been, it's been very helpful to us to allow you know, both those to run at the same time on the same machine because that way we know, you know if, there's, if there's something fundamentally broken about the way we did 1.1 and we, it's incredibly difficult for us to preserve that in 2.0, it gives us a little bit of flexibility yeah. on making a change if it's really important. At yeah, the same time, you, though... You could let it go and say, yeah. well, look, just keep the 1.1 running on if you want to keep that application working. If you're going to move to 2.0, you've got to make these changes, and exactly. here they are. Exactly. But at the same time, we only make those changes very, very carefully. Yeah. The, the principle is that code written for 1.1 should compile and run on 2.0 unmodified. Right. And we work very hard to do that. And that's mostly for the developers because they've got this investment yeah, and we want right. to make it easy for them to make use of our yes. new stuff. We don't want it to be a 10-week project for them to migrate exactly. to 2.0. There's nothing worse than taking old code and having to revise it to a new situation yes. like that. Before yeah. you even get any new features. Before just, you get right. no new yeah. features. All exactly. that happens is that old code now breaks. 
And we should also, with a caveat to the developers listening out there who run beta software, don't expect side-by-side compatibility with beta versions. Yes. All right? You're it's asking beta. for it. Yes. It's beta. We're talking about the finished runtime version. So That's a good point, side- Carl. Yeah. And one, one of the principles here about side-by-side, I think it, it's important that we be judicious in our use of it. Mm. You know, it might seem like a panacea, but the reality is, you know, as a, as a user, you wouldn't want every beta and every... QFE and every service pack you're running side by side in your no. machine because it's an un- unmaintainable mess. Yeah. You know, quickly, yeah. you'd have yeah. tens or hundreds of versions on your machine. You'd never know what was running on yeah. what. If you had a secure problem, you couldn't That's fix it. That's what virtual PC is for. Oh, yeah. In a way. <laughs> Although I don't think people are going to have hundreds of VPCs on their machine either. So. Probably not. Well, yeah, you we can. It's just on this. nothing much happens then. Yeah. <laughs> just be patient. <laughs> yes. Yes. Maybe. Yeah. Be very patient. Anyway, the, the use of the side by side as a concept is something that you know, we're enthusiastic about doing carefully, judiciously, because yeah. it, it provides a tool to help improve our ability to migrate, improve our application compatibility. So the the developers out there need to know what, you know, how different is the upgrade from 1.1 to 2.0 than 1.0 to 1.1? How much new stuff do we have? Just give us a number, a percentage, a number of Number of, uh, you know, types. How, how many have they been increased? <laughs> well, I, actually, to, a month ago, I knew uh, the data. It, it's probably it's probably 2x more types. I don't remember the exact wow. data. Lori Pierce's SDK team uh, shows me that on occasion, and 2.0 is substantially larger. Wow. Although one of the things I'm enthusiastic about is that while we have a huge amount more technology in 2.0, mm. the redis size is about the same. It's even a little bit smaller. Wow. Um, <laughs> we've just been more judicious in, in the way we use space in that file, and the performance has increased pretty substantially. Um, it's That's another, good to hear. Yeah, it's been a big area of focus in 2.0 is reducing the memory usage yeah. of .NET Framework applications. Yeah. And we made, uh, we feel a heck of a lot of progress making apps faster, especially in working set. So that there's less memory used by each so application. So does that mean that um, people who are running on Windows 98 systems will have a better time with this? Or yeah. are we are we still targeting Windows 98? Well, it still runs on 98. I'll be honest and say that our focus these days is more making it, work, yeah, making it work great on um XP and WSO3 and Vista. Those are the main systems that we focus yeah. on. And along the way, 2000 is going to get a pretty good shake of that. Because yes. It's yes. not yeah, that it's far away from X. 2000 is a great operating system, by the way. Fabulous operating system. Yep. 2000 is very similar. Uh, and so it works on 2000 and above and 98 and ME. Those are the systems. Yeah. And uh, what, are the, what are the major reasons that people should be looking at uh, .NET for 2.0 if they have not yet been uh, interested or been able to to look at it since since now, until now. Yeah. Well, a couple of them I just gave, uh, the performance improvements and, sure. and the, the new functionality across a wide swath of problem spaces. One in particular I got to give some special airtime to is the work that the ASP.NET team has done, making it just amazingly yes. easy to build really compelling web server applications with .NET. We've come a long way since 97 in ASP. Yeah. It's yeah, a, a long, heck of a lot way. better than ASP Classic. The The... Often, you know, we show the innovations that we have in ASP.NET. We'd be to customers like, here's how you can build a website that does this. And it takes a remarkably small amount of time to build a compelling application, a compelling web application. And so, you know, if you're interested in building web applications and you want to put one together really quickly, take a look at ASP.NET. It's kind of a no-brainer, isn't it? I mean. It it is so strong. I think ASP.NET 2.0. You know, we're very proud of the of the work there because it makes it so easy to build these applications. Yeah, closest we've come to true drag and drop programming. It really is close. That's yeah. a good analogy. But it isn't smoke and mirrors either. It's not like wizards yeah. that are built on. Oh yeah, we'll figure out the code later. I mean, it's yeah. all based on solid foundation of .NET framework. Drag and drip code you can actually ship, which is kind of amazing. I've always yeah. resisted that 
you know, any old school programmer's got that resistance to, if I didn't write it yep. myself, it can't possibly be right. Yeah. Right. But you put this code together, you throw it out there, and it just doesn't break. Yeah, it really is pretty robust. In addition to the ASP.NET side, let me, let me talk about one client feature that we're really pleased about, which is click once. Um, you'll hear a lot at this conference, for example, Microsoft's push on what we call the smart client. Mm -hmm. Because we're very enthusiastic about the, the user experience that you can give by running some code on the client and the like. One of the big challenges, of course, with client code has always been deployment. Always. You know, it's, it's a pain to go install an application and keep it updated. Whereas the web, you know, the person just does it on the server. It's all super simple for them. The idea behind ClickOnce is we make client applications as easy to deploy and update as web applications. Right. And so it, it's really quite simple to to run these things, uh, to administer them, and we think it'll do a lot for helping people run smart client Windows Forms kinds of code. It's been a long time since we talked about Click Once. We talked about it with Brian Noyes, like right when people were starting to hear about it. Okay, it was like 2003, I think. That's uh, about when it got invented. Yeah, yeah. So, um, and it's been a long time coming. I mean, it's not an easy technology. Anybody who ships software to, and dealt with the install problem knows. There's really no simple way. And in the end, you guys are building a set of tools that are simply pulling all that complexity together into one place so that it's managed. It's not eliminated, just managed. It's a lot easier. I think one thing you'll find is that, um, you know, I'm, I'm an optimist, of course, and yeah. I'm, I'm maybe biased because I own some of the technology. But I think that once we ship Wibby, you'll start hearing a lot more about ClickOnce because I think people are going to see how cool it is to be able to write a smart client application and not have to worry about the deployment hassle. Right. So back then when we talked to Brian Noyes, it was about making a manifest file and putting it on the server and you had to tweak some XML yeah. and stuff. What's the experience like oh, now Oh, it's a ton easier developer? now. Yeah, if you use Visual Studio, um, sometimes I do a demo where it's basically uh, 10 mouse clicks to really? create a very simple Windows Forms application that is deployable by click once. So do you do a traditional setup program with a setup and deployment wizard then? Is it part of that? It, or It essentially auto-creates that for you. So hmm. Visual Studio, it, it's not a, a full-born, you know, MSI, heavyweight yeah. installer program. Right. Um, it does the appropriate, it, it creates the manifest. It does the appropriate setup stuff for you so that you really don't have to spend much time at front all. Front page extensions to get it onto the server. Exactly. It, yeah. it loads it up to the web server by FPSC, the front page extensions. Sweet. Yeah. Or FTP or, you know, any of the other mechanisms. Excellent. And then you basically just give the URL to people, right? right. Exactly. So you, take, you give people the URL and then, you know, when they run that URL, um, it asks a question, you want to install this code in, sorry, install, install this code in your machine. Um, and it happens very naturally. Yeah. Uh, from the user's point of view, it's as easy as running a web page as the whole philosophy. So from the user's point of view, um, would you necessarily want to create a setup program that actually puts something in their start menu that is like an internet shortcut so that when they click that, they can go? Is there something along those lines? Because, you know, telling users, launch it from this URL, believe it or not, sometimes has an incredibly confusing, well, how do I do that? You know, the geeks would make an HTML file that has a link in it save it to the desktop and then they can load it up and click on it. But this is you, you've uncovered one of the early design decisions we made on click once. Mm -hmm. Um, we've, we decided there are kind of two sorts of applications and we call them online and offline. Yeah. Um, in the offline type of application, uh, you want to put something in the start menu. You want to be able to run, even if they're not connected on the network. Right. Um, it'll still check for updates when it starts up. And if you are connected, it can successfully. And click once can do this. Yeah. Click once does all that automatically. So it has, um, that offline functionality. But you as a developer can choose whether you want your app to be an online app or an offline app. If you choose an online app, it doesn't necessarily put something in the start menu. Okay. Um, it does insist that the, the 
machine beyond the network in order to use correctly. So you've got both modes of interaction, you know, the start menu, kind of more traditional feel to the application, or something that's more like a web page or really kind of does demand that you be online, has the same benefits and constraints as that. And that's the, uh, the initial install. Now, of course, the big equation is the updates. And I'm hoping this is all program-driven, that the app fires up, goes off and checks somewhere and says, hey, there's a new version of me. Shall I go get it? Yep, you just described it. That's exactly how it works. In fact, um, if I recall correctly, it'll, it'll by default get it automatically and just download it. Just go get it. it. Yeah. So, and, and if you're not connected to the internet, it'll automatically use the offline version yep, if that's there? Precisely. And it doesn't even just tell you, it just does it, yep, right? Exactly. There exactly. isn't any, would you like to use the offline? And the, that's all true. Yeah. You guys just essentially program manage the designs. You got, you got exactly <laughs> what it does. Can you, can you spot the guys who've already shipped software? It's we, know, we know what our customers want. Yes. So that's... There's one other cool thing it does. I have to tell you guys about this. Um, so it, it does update automatically. But yeah. suppose you as the user decide, you know, you just changed and you busted it for me. I don't yeah. like the update yeah. you did. Well, you can go to add, remove programs and you can revert to the version that you had previously. No kidding. Nice. So, so if the developer screws up, the end user has an out to go back to the oh, version that, that they so liked before. Cool. Yeah. Now, how, does it keep all the revs? No, it just keeps the well, previous and, one. And minus one. So it keeps two for you. Right. So it's sort of the revert to last known oh, good that's great. kind of You can think of like an application cache almost. Yeah, kind of. Right? Kind of. Sweet. Yeah, we didn't want to go to the complexity of keeping all versions yes. because at some point, you know, you don't care about 20 yeah. versions old. So we just the said current and the last. Versions. Yeah, well, exactly. But that, that, that reminds me much more of the OS model because the same thing happens in, in current versions of XP and so right. forth with drivers that you can always revert a driver. In fact, I just had this happen to me where I installed uh, the automatic update version of a network driver and now my machine was hanging every other day. Yep. And then I thought, the only thing I've changed is that driver. How could that driver do that? I just had the option to revert. It's so simple to push a button and say, go back to previous version. Yeah. The problem goes away. Yep. yep. You know, that's a pretty compelling way to work that we can have those choices now. And that's due to the side-by-side thing. Again, you can have multiple versions of the application. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's not the same side-by-side score, but the concept is, sure, is the, the same. the concept it's, is the it's same. It's also side-by-side. And uh, you know what I tell end users when they end users will ask me, what is .NET all about and why should I care about it? Why should I download the .NET framework? Um, one of the big things that I would tell them is that precisely this is that you when you upgrade a program you're not really upgrading you know we need a new word for upgrade you install the new version you run the new version the old version is still there and that's just unheard of with applications that you buy in the store you know an application that you you know a big application that everybody runs uh you know something that you buy like a like a uh you know a, a virus checker or something like that when the thing runs it doesn't say you know, it always says, w- you need to upgrade to the next version. Would you like I mean, to upgrade? It puts the responsibility on you to decide, do you know the answer to this question? That's right. And if it doesn't work, sometimes you're screwed. You're yeah. and you're, well, you do said you it. wanted this, so yeah. now it's your fault it didn't work. Yeah. Right. Would you like to spin the wheel and play Russian <laughs> roulette? Yes, no. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So that's that's great stuff. And this all ties into how, – how does – how does WIDBY tie into Windows Vista? What's the relationship there? Sure. Um, WIDBY is included as part of Windows Vista. Okay. So that when you get Vista, it's it's installed you know, as part of the installation process. .NET 2.0 is what yeah, you mean. Exactly. The yeah, exactly. The framework. Yep. And uh, so there isn't going to be another framework at at uh, Vista ship time? Is that what you're well, saying? Or strictly, there'll be a probably a very small update. We'll have some kind of servicing release that we'll do with Vista. Okay, but um, it's not going to be Orcus. Correct. Yeah, okay. we won't have a full turn of the crank with Orcus. Great. We're working on planning on Orcus right now. Sure. Um, we're short, shooting for a 2007 release time frame for Orcus. Mm-hmm. And the focus of Orcus, both for 
the framework and for Visual Studio will be supporting the great work that you see in Vista and Office 12. So, I mean, we're going to get the 2.0 framework now mm -hmm. uh, at the end of this year. We're not expecting Vista to the end of next year. So for sure, there'll be going to be some revs to 2.0 along the way. It's exciting to me that we're finally going to get an OS that ships a version of the framework. Yes. It'll be, it'll be whole, right in there. The whole lot a client of side OS is going to go away. Yeah. And I'm, I'm really looking forward to that. Yeah, we are too. <laughs> yeah. And then... To make then, it a lot easier for customers. And that's the, the reason we do it, is to remove the customer challenge of downloading and installing this extra bit of platform goo that's not directly about their so application. The, so my obvious question, maybe for the listeners, is why didn't we do that with XP? Uh, because XP have... shipped before .NET Framework did. It's okay. a really simple answer. 2001 is when XP shipped, and, and Framework 1 wasn't ready till after that. Yeah, XP shipped October of 01. 1.0 was after XP. Yeah, it's true. I, I mean, it's hard to remember, but it, and they were close. And you realize also, don't look at the actual ship dates. Yeah, they were very Think close. Think about where the RTMs were and when they had a chance to integrate. If I remember correctly, though, they were very, they were very, very close. close. Yeah. The exact dates were October, I don't remember what day in October. October 01 was XP. February yeah. 02 was the original release. Right, it was 1.0. And so that you must have obviously been going back and forth with the decision of should we try we, to incorporate? Should we try to we, do we it? We went at the same through it, but the one thing you have to remember about Windows is things have to be done early in Windows, yeah. especially lower level platform technology. You have to get done way soon. You're so right. Realistically, it wasn't all that hard a decision. No. Okay. We knew that this guy needed to have the line. framework ready in early 2001 yeah. if you were going to put it into that's Windows. Exactly right. I mean, that's, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. So it wasn't really four months. I mean, yeah, it was four months on the RTM dates, but we yes. would have had to be more than four months earlier with the framework in order to integrate it. Yeah. The, and if you look what's happening with Woodby and Vista, that's kind of the model that we have to pursue. You know, Woodby's right. done essentially just about now. Yeah. Shortly, you know, knock wood. The Vista's done around a year from now. So we mm -hmm. need to have that sort of time gap to get it integrated properly, everything working. That kind right. of it's all good. Yeah. And and there'll be a rev to 2.0 along the way to pick up some things. Yeah. You know, it'll be a good thing. Yeah, exactly. So yesterday, David, and we're out of NDA now, um, we saw at the regional director side meeting a new – a uh, set of designers for uh, uh, that I they believe they ran on Windows Vista. We had um, a, a graphical designer, and then we had an interactive designer, Sparkle, which is really what I want to talk about. Um, what 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 are those things? And tell us about those sure. and, and how why developers should care about them. I'm interested in your role in that because I find I think that product. Not only fascinating, but it's almost to me like it came out of left field. It's so different right. from it, everything else we've seen. Yeah, well, sure. let's hear you define it, and then i got a million questions for you. Okay. That's great we'll stuff. So you're talking about what we call the expression family of products. Yes, That's the expression right. family. It's essentially three uh, new products aimed for designers mm -hmm. to help them create uh, compelling user interfaces, compelling presentation of things. The three products are the Sparkle Interactive Designer, mm -hmm which essentially helps you create uh, Windows Presentation Foundation, or formerly Avalon, applications. There's the Quartz Web Designer, which essentially helps you build websites as a look and f or a WYSIWYG kind of look and feel for building websites. And then there's the Acrylic Graphic Designer, which is a bitmap and vector editing tool to help you essentially build, build pictures is ultimately right, what it gets right, down right, to. Yeah. So those are the three products. Uh, they are, we, we announced them here at the PDC, yeah. and the purpose of them is to help it, help designers build the look and feel of applications much more easily. And the thing that we think we build, bring uniquely to the equation is the ability to integrate that designer workflow 
with what the developer does. Yeah. You know, one of the things that we're doing there that we think is pretty compelling is we make it very easy for a designer and a developer to work easily together to create a single application. Usually two different people. It's always been a problem. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And the thing that amazed me about looking at Sparkle is it looked like Whitby. Yeah. I and mean, it looked like the Studio IDE, except it did things that the Studio IDE just cannot do. Of well, we're trying to build a family of products and we right. want them to be integrated. We want wherever possible for skills to flow across. But we also know that oftentimes, you know, the guy banging out C++ or VB or C-sharp code is different than the person yes. creating the compelling looking design of the application. Very different skill sets. Basically, different skill sets, exactly. Basically what we saw for the listeners and if and they can go to the PDC uh, website and see these uh, yeah, I believe they're all up there. videos, great. If you haven't been to the PDC, that is. Um, what we basically saw that blew me away was a designer um, who only wrote a couple lines of code and probably wouldn't have to do that in the final product anyway, but it's just because this is all alpha stuff. With Without really writing any code, they were able to take um, pictures that were generated with acrylic, turn them into XAML, load them up in uh, the Sparkle editor, make a designer, uh, use a designer to create sort of... I guess you could call it like the VB designer on on steroids, right? Uh, to to create the this graphical interface, um, bind it to a data source, which was all picking from sources. There wasn't any code involved, and you came out with this incredible three D looking uh, animated uh, data complete data browser with reflections on what looked like glass, like a glass countertop. With all sorts of beautiful, I mean, just beautiful UIs, unbelievable. It was so neat how without simple it writing was any code to create that drag and drop animation, where he took that form, shrunk it down to a tenth of its size, stuck it behind another form, rotated ninety degrees, and then said, "Now move it back to where it was, and take a half a second to do that," and then couple it to the click event. Again, all drag and drop. This is something a designer could reasonably do, reasonably do. Yep, you know, without getting into the detailed code. Maybe the detail code part that the developer would do would have to do with fetching from the various sources, setting up some web services, if, that kind of thing. If not using data binding. I mean, they did a, a lot a of lot stuff of that with data binding data that binding. you wouldn't necessarily uh, you have done in the past. Like, you know, there's a lot of great bindings. There's a great binding story there, too. The thing that we think is going to happen in the industry is that you know, we've essentially solved connectivity. The web, the internet do great for that. But uh, user interface is still... You know, it's not as as clean and sexy as it can be. Yeah. And the reason for that is it's hard. It takes a lot of work between an expert developer and an expert designer who yeah. have the tools don't help them work together. What we're trying to do with expression in the combination with VS is to really lower the barrier to entry to building awesome, compelling mm. user interfaces. Mm -hmm. What we think that'll do is let people build applications that are much easier for their end users to build. And it'll be substantially easier to create those applications. Yeah. So we see a huge amount of business opportunity resulting from all that. Yeah, sure. You can really differentiate your application by having a, a very snazzy, easy-to-use UI, and we're going to help make it easier for you to actually build those applications. So now that you know how cool it is, help me fit this into the puzzle of timeline and products. Okay. So the expression suite or the expression family is independent of Visual Studio. None of it chips with Widby. Um, we'll be having the, the three different products are not – hardcore linked at this point in time. I forget the exact dates of all of them. There'll be, uh, some of it's being given out, the PDC here. There'll be betas, I think of all three of them next year. And uh, the idea is that they'll be shipping shortly after Vista. So 
There'll be independent freestanding products. So there'll be after Vista, after Vista before Orcus. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And there might, some of that's still uncertain. Hey, this is Jeff, the sound guy. Sorry to interrupt, but I got to give you a little heads up. Coming up shortly, there's going to be a little bit of a loss in the sound quality. Well, a big loss in the sound quality. Carl was recording the show on a portable recorder and, uh, well, he ran out of space. So I did what I could and uh, it's intelligible, but it sounds a little funny. Yeah, now you're getting far enough out that new ideas come along and reactions by the market are going to affect things. So. so the timings could change, and we expect these to be in the next year or two when they're going to come out. We'll be having pre-releases in the near future. But the goal is that you should be able to take stuff that's designed with acrylic and with sparkle and give it to a would-be developer, and they can they can do the glue with the exactly. code. And vice versa. And yep. vice versa. You know, from- the, the project management, the... The template files that they use are all the same, so it's easy to have uh, integration between the two. For me, the biggest thing is that bi-directionality. You know, I've built, worked on a lot of projects where we had great web designers build beautiful websites that we then gave to the programmers to put the functionality in, which was fine. But when the rev came and they did that second iteration and the designers had to go back in, they smashed it. And you had to tear all that code out and reassemble it again. It was very hard. The, you know, the designers historically have created a compelling... Uh, prototype essentially kind of given to the developers who totally changed the way that gets implemented. They basically yeah. have to use that as a specification for what they do. Right. The beauty of what we do in the expression suite is the designer creates the actual, you know, the XAML, the look and feel, they're really creating it. Yeah. Developer plugs into that such that if the designer later needs to change it, they essentially change the live application. Not with mm-hmm. code, you know, they use the, the right. designer, for example, right. but but it's the exact thing that they're working on, not some approximation yeah. that's it's not a bitmap or yeah, and not, nothing that to create a bitmap that the designer has no chance of being yeah. Right. And vice versa, the developer isn't looking at pseudo screenshots that they didn't have to interpret and implement into an app. Exactly. It's so exactly. slick. Yeah, it's it, a, it, it's it, a better it, way to work. And it should really help the designer have a much stronger and more clear role in the creation of the application because they're actually you know, in control of the, the presentation aspects and the developer can focus on the code aspects. Now, for people whose job it is to produce software, and I don't mean the developers, but you know the people above who actually whose job is to ship, this is great news. I mean, this is we're talking serious reduction in uh, time to market, productivity, increased revenue. I mean, this is a huge deal right. to them. Yeah, I mean, as much as it is to the developers, new candy to play with, right? It's it, it means business. I yeah. mean, this is well. That's the business opportunity I was talking about earlier because it it really does facilitate the creation of compelling, easy to use user experiences. And so we think that people who adopt this stuff will be able to have much more success, much more differentiation in their applications because they're going to look so good. Oh, yeah. The end users will really like what you can do with Windows Presentation Foundation. Oh, my God. It's amazing. On the other, you know, the other spin of that, and one of the things, thoughts I had when I first looked at Sparkle, I said, here's a whole new set of tools for building an amazing level of ugly. Yeah, that's right. Some of the early uh, demonstrations I've seen kind of reminded me of what some people like you with PowerPoint the first time you realized. Oh, yeah. Get a little gadget happy. We see bangy stuff happen. Yeah. yeah. It'll let you do that, but you know, we're confident that the, the designer's maturity will... Well, and this is the thing is when you put a professional designer in and they have that sense of subtlety and style, you get, and I don't presume that I have any of those skills, but I know when I see it. Well, we'll take this stuff and go nuts with it. Absolutely. I'm looking forward to seeing what Dax does with these tools. I am not looking forward to seeing what I'm doing with those tools. I'll I'll be like you. Mine will be ugly. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. We're talking about a guy who does our graphics. He's from India. He's a brilliant kid, really. He's a kid. But he is very talented. Very, very talented. 
Yeah, he's looking forward to this stuff, too, I know. But yeah, we're, we're pretty excited about the, the progress we've made on it so far. So really what it means is that if you're, you know, if you're, if you're writing software and you don't have an artistically-minded designer on staff, get one. Because you're going to be in trouble if you don't. Give them these tools and your stuff will, will sparkle. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> there, you go, there you go. The other thing about those, those designers, they're all built on top of WinFX. Yeah. WinFX is essentially the next version of .NET, the .NET framework. Right. And you know, Sparkle makes deep use of the Windows presentation. Is that where you sit in this role, yeah. dealing yeah, with it's it? Thriller, you know, what's my involvement in it? Essentially, I supply a lot of the underlying technologies that the Expression family makes use of, all the WinFX stuff that they uh, call to achieve their functionality is where I'm responsible. Is ultimately part of the CLR. Not literally. Well, not so literally, part, but of the part of the framework. WinFX, right. Way to say it. And I'm sort of responsible for overseeing WinFX at Microsoft. David, uh, do you have any pet projects going on, like at home, when you go home to, you know, one o'clock in the morning, whip out the code and start working on you know, things? The, the, the stuff I've been messing with lately is Windows Media Center. Oh, yeah? Oh, MCE guy. Yeah, it's, it, you got to put in a little effort to get it going, but once you get it going, it's pretty darn cool. Do you like write code for it, too? I've messed up a little bit of code, but more, you know, just using the extenders and, and the different... Uh, just getting it set up to its full potential. Getting it set up to full potential, that's a good way to put it. it it's pretty fun. I, I think that when the Xbox 360 releases... One of the really neat features that it has is it's got a media center extender functionality. Right in it, yeah. So what that'll let people do is you can have an Xbox in your living room to play games. And you already have or will have a computer in your den. Well, I think the biggest issue with media center has been you kind of had to put the computer in your living room. Yeah, you do. Now you'll be able to connect the Xbox to the PC such that the PC still sits in your den, but you can watch TV, listen to music, everything else. In your living room. Via the extender. Yeah. (laughs) And the only challenge, and it is a little bit of a challenge, but the only thing you have to do really is get the Xbox wired to the PC. Right. If you're setting up Xbox Live, you got it somehow wired to your internet. Clearly, you got your PC wired to the internet. You've got the connection. Everything's there. It's just a matter of setting it up. Just configuring it right. That's what will happen there. So if you don't use, you know, 256-bit security, then the kid next door is going to be like playing your Xbox games for you. (laughs) (laughs) Well, man, this has been a, a fabulous interview. I, I ask all of my uh, guests towards the end of the show, and with a little caveat to Microsoft people, like excluding Microsoft tools because they're all cool, what's the coolest thing you've downloaded lately? Coolest thing I've downloaded lately? And this is kind of a simple one, but um, I also like to do uh, photography. Oh. And uh, it's it's kind of infrastructure. I, I have started using the raw plugins for Adobe Photoshop. Wow. So, they're fabulous. Are you a Canon fan then? Actually, I use Nikon stuff. You're a Nikon guy. Okay. So, yeah, the raw format is, of course, the, the natural uh, yeah. results of CCD encoding, and exactly. they have yeah, all the details of the photo. Native, and you can you know, mess with it after the fact. And it's great being able to do the, do the photography in raw directly. If you miss the exposure, you can change it a half a stop yeah. or a stop. Shifted it around. There's only so far you can go with that before you start mangling your picture. Yeah, you can't go too far, but you got a little bit more flexibility than you do with it. I'm, I'm really glad to see that the, there is finally getting to the concept of a digital negative between the different camera companies. And then we can all end up, of course, at Adobe to, uh, to manipulate the photos and try to bring this stuff together and get the best results we can from it. Very good. So you're re- probably really into the whole, you know, the photo demos that they do in Vista with all the photo viewers. Oh, that stuff's great. Yeah. Oh, yeah. The mantle yeah. top photo. The, the project that they're showing today, Max, uh, is really a compelling little, essentially a shell application. Yeah. Again, it makes use of WinFX, so it underlies a lot of this stuff. But I think that uh, the things that you can do with photos on a PC, is just amazing the way it's going. I, love, I just am blown away by the way Media Center presents photos that sort of move and fade across yeah, one another. The Ken Burns effect? Yeah, the Ken Burns effect. <laughs> oh, it's wonderful. 
It's wonderful. <laughs> That's what it is, too. It's like, you know. Well, David, thank you very much. That was uh, fabulous talking to you, and I'm glad we got to hook up, especially, you know, with your history of Windsock and, and all the old stuff. It's real fun talking about that. Yeah, thanks very much. We had a great time. I did, too. It was real fun to have the opportunity. Thanks, you guys, okay. for the opportunity. All right. Great. Thanks. And uh, that was Richard and I talking to David Treadwell at the PDC in uh, one of those rooms on the side, off in the nether regions of the Los Angeles Convention Center. And, uh, man, what a great guy. He was amazing. Yeah. Yeah, especially I like the the part about Windsock, you know, where he told me that he wrote Windsock. That was... Yeah, he's sweet. the guy. Yeah. Who knew? Yeah, I never heard of him before. And and here he is, uh, you know, uh, one of us doing uh, doing the VP thing. It's great. Definitely. I don't mean that we're one of him. I mean, you know, he's a developer. That's what I meant. Yeah. <laughs> I don't even want to compare any of us to this guy. <laughs> well, anyway, uh, you know, the, the end of that uh, sounded a little bit weird because uh, one of our recorders ran out of uh, room uh, and uh, we had to sort of improvise a little bit. And it sounded a little strange, but we wanted to bring you the whole interview in its entirety. Well, uh, Richard, next week on the show, we're going to be interviewing Amanda Silver and Paul Vick and Eric Meyer on the VB team, on the Visual Basic team. We've already interviewed them. You're right. just going to hear it next week. We're going to hear it next week. We had a great time with them in the same room, actually. And uh, <laughs> I always love talking to these guys. They're, they're brilliant. Uh, they're working on great stuff. And, and they told us a lot, uh, a lot more things that we haven't already heard about Visual Basic 2005. Yep. So on behalf of myself and Jeff Maciolik and uh, in the sound room, Richard Campbell in Vancouver, of course, and of course, David Treadwell, thanks for listening to .NET Rocks. We'll see you next week. .NET Rocks can be found online at www.dotnetrocks.com and at msdn.microsoft.com slash d-o-t-n-e-t-r-o-c-k-s. .NET Rocks is edited each week by Jeff Maciolik, that's me, and Carl Franklin, who is also executive producer. All music heard on .NET Rocks, including Toy Boy, the theme song, is created and produced by Carl Franklin and Franklin Brothers Band. Carl Never Sleeps. .NET Rocks is produced for Franklin's Net by Plop Productions, providing professional audio and podcasting services online at www.pwop.com. Plop, it's time to get your impact back. Yes, I'm a